Tim Scott announces in Bakhmut Falls. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National You podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made in Cookware and Waterstone. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we are recording Late Tuesday morning, we had the Tim Scott announcement yesterday, and I don't know about you, but I think what it lacked was energy. If you're just kind of into it and bouncing up and down and showing that he's really excited about this campaign in America, maybe it would have been a good announcement, but but he, he, he really needs to get this thing up to 11. Ah. I assume that's sarcasm. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, yes. <laughs> Tim Scott has that, you know, Southern preacher. When when he said, you know, at one point during his announcement speech, can I get an amen? I was screaming amen at my uh, computer screen. Uh, look, I think very highly of Tim Scott. I think he's one of the best and most impressive and most inherently likable uh, and appreciated Republicans in the Senate. And I think he'd be... Uh, I'd love to see what he could do as president. I'd love to see what he could do as a Republican nominee. I fear he will not get uh, very far in these primaries, and I fear that the Republican Party is simply not interested in giving Tim Scott a serious hearing. If that is the case, that is a reflection of the flaws, that is a reflection of the flaws of the Republican Party primary electorate, not really a reflection of the flaws of Tim Scott. Um, there is a big chunk of the party that seems to think the only way that you can possibly win, the only way that you can possibly be a good Republican presidential candidate is to be as obnoxious and in-your-face and antagonistic and just to spit bile on the moment you get up there, that you have to be the nastiest SOB possible. And um, that's not been traditionally the way things have worked in the United States uh, you can point back to Reagan being the happy warrior. You can point to plenty of Republicans who have been happy warriors. The Trump victory over Hillary Rodham Clinton, arguably the weakest candidate ever, uh, certainly one of the most deeply flawed candidates ever to win one of the two major party nominations, um, was a really unique set of circumstances. And from that, a whole bunch of Republicans have decided nastiness works, antagonism works. The primary mo- primary motivation of a Republican presidential candidate should be to, quote, own the libs, unquote. And Tim Scott seems like a guy who'd be perfectly happy to sit down and have some barbecue with the libs. He doesn't come around with this seething um, disdain and bile for everybody who doesn't think the same way he does. Uh, I, I My fear is that Tim Scott will not get a serious hearing. Uh, but again, I think that says more about the party than it does about Tim Scott. Good luck, Tim Scott. Yeah, so, no, he's clearly, I mean, a hugely winsome guy. This was, uh, there's a lot of enjoyable parts of this announcement at the beginning, giving the flowers to his mom. I would say, you know, it's a little disjointed. And then I think a a problem that Jim puts his finger on, and and I would say this is not necessarily just a problem of the Trumpified Republican Party where nastiness is is considered to be a toughness and and effectiveness. Even if that aside, even by more, you know, 
from a more conventional prism, the problem with the message is there's not, you know, you need a little edge. You, you need something that's a distinctive. And it, it's hard to see what that is with Tim Scott. It's, you know, the story, the optimism, the faith in America, the pushing back against smears of America, all that's, all that's wonderful. But I don't think that in of itself adds up to a necessarily a, a potent political message. Well, I did kind of notice in this announcement speech where the only aspect of it that made any news from a perspective of somebody who knows a senator's record and how he approaches politics was that he struck out a position that is relatively hawkish on the world stage uh, in, a, in a realm that he's not especially well-defined in, foreign policy. A couple of lines from his announcement speech. Hundreds of people on the terrorist watch list are crossing our borders. Chinese nationals are flooding into Mexico to break in. When I'm president, the drug cartels using Chinese labs and Mexican factories to kill Americans will cease to exist. I will let the world's greatest military fight these terrorists. Now, we can kind of assume that he's not going to violate posse comitatus, so what does that mean? Well, perhaps it means that the senator is coming out in favor, at least conceptually, of what is a live issue among Republicans, the prospect of an authorization to use military force against cartels south of the border. Very fraught prospect, something that's more a political issue in the United States than a live issue when it comes to national security policy. But one that could be um, subject to debate and could inoculate the senator um, from the charge that he's too hawkish for the Republican base on issues like Ukraine, where he supports Ukraine, supports providing ordinance to Ukraine, supports opposing uh, Russian revanchism and expansionism, in part because China's on the side of Russian expansionism. Um, so he struck out a position here that is anything but conciliatory. Where he is conciliatory, and where I think uh, Jim's right when it comes to the proclivities of the Republican base that might be a political problem down the line, is he's very focused on racial issues in ways that have the potential to irritate base Republican primary voters. One of the arguments against him I saw from the MAGA right uh, and honestly, uh, here, too, the uh, National Review uh, editorial policy uh, came out against Senator Scott's approach. But he scuttled a nominee for a, a federal court uh, appointment in Oregon based on the nominee's uh, rather pointed, provocative writings about racial issues when he was younger. Um, and that was kind of taken out of context and perhaps lent undue authority and gravity by both Senator Tim Scott and Marco Rubio, who helped scuttle the nomination. But it all comes from a position of wanting to see the Republican Party um, triangulate on racial issues, become less provocative and less aggressive on racial issues. And that has turned off the senator's critics. Now, I don't think he necessarily made the right judgment there either. But if it comes from a place of wanting to seek racial rapprochement and repair the Republican Party's brand, particularly when it comes to African Americans who are shedding who are sloughing off the Democratic coalition, it's a valuable political project in the general. Maybe it doesn't work in the primary. So, Charlie, two questions. Is there such a thing, in your view, as zombie Reaganism? And if so, is Tim Scott a zombie Reaganite? Well, before I get to discussing zombies, can I just add the most plausible argument in favor of Tim Scott's story and identity doubling as a policy agenda. Go ahead. I 
broadly agree with you, Rich. I don't think that he's going to get that far. And I don't think what I'm about to suggest is likely to happen. But I will say there is a little bit of a difference here than uh, from, say, 2015, 2016, when one of the criticisms of Marco Rubio was we don't particularly care about your American dream. And that mm-hmm. is that in the interim, in the intervening time, wokeism in all of its various forms has become a huge issue in American politics. We're not just talking here about its practical application, DEI, reparations, proposals in California, and so on. We're talking about a deliberate and widespread attempt to undermine the American founding, probably most pointedly attempted with the 1619 project. And if you look through polls of Republican primary voters and you scroll down to the what is the most important to you question, fighting this is pretty high up. In some cases, it's higher up than fixing (laughs) her entitlements crisis or fighting inflation. And Tim Scott is well-placed to do that because he is able to say, not just I oppose this and as president I will do this, that, and the other, but he's able to do it in a way that Donald Trump is not, both because he has uh, an affect that allows him to discuss these issues with people without alienating them, but also because he does have the story. He is quite a good foil against the idea that your immutable characteristics and the history of your family are in some way dispositive. So that's the one caveat that I would add to the, I think, broadly correct anticipation that he's not going to catch fire. On the Reagan-Republican question, I don't think that Reaganism has been zombified. I think this is a canard. This is used by a relatively small group on the right that when it is allowed to pick candidates and control the agenda, loses. I don't think that the broad Reagan vision is outdated, and I don't think that it is unpopular. And I think to understand that, One only has to look at what Donald Trump actually did when he was president. What did he achieve as president? What is he now touting as president as the reason he should be given a second term? Tax cuts? A relatively strong foreign policy, despite his rhetoric. Federalist society, originalist judges... And there wasn't much abandoning of the Reagan instinct. And the one thing where he did abandon the Reagan instinct, which was criminal justice reform, is hated by all of the people who shout zombie Reaganism all the time. If you see someone write the word zombie Reaganism in a publication in the United States, look up what they think of criminal justice reform as signed by Donald Trump. They hate it. So I think this is a... I think this is a, a silly a silly term. I suspect that some of it 
has to do with immigration. And on that, Reagan was a little bit different than the contemporary Republican Party, not just in his rhetoric and his policy preferences, but in what he did. He did sign a bill that led to an amnesty and promised enforcement measures that were never realized. But Tim Scott, and that's our topic, is not of that view. In fact, Tim Scott made a big deal during his speech of being determined to enforce the border, of opposing this sort of broad-based immigration reform that led to a rebellion within the ranks, first under George W. Bush and then under Obama. And as Noah points out, he even went so far as to imply that he might want to use the military to go and fight the cartels. So I don't think outside of political rhetoric, which may or may not be effective, that it's an especially useful term when discussing Tim Scott. The one thing, maybe it's just a personal peeve of mine, but I, I just don't want to hear any Republicans say city on the hill again. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's true. It has a history going back, you know, much further than Reagan, obviously, but uh, it, it's just such a cliche. Why do you hate our Puritan? Hat? Yeah. <laughs> so Jim Garrity X, a question to you. Let's double barrel it. If Tim Scott were the nominee, he would beat Joe Biden uh, fairly handily or have very good chance of beating Joe Biden. He would beat him like a drum on par with Ringo Starr, to use an illusion that Charlie would appreciate. <laughs> Noah Rothman. Yeah, I, I mean, caveats notwithstanding and the hard target that an incumbent president presents, yeah, I think he would have a very, very strong shot. Charlie. Well, I'll say what I always say, which is that I think Sorry Biden is stronger. Do we have to hear this again, Charlie? <laughs> yeah, let's just assume I've said all that. And I'll say he would have a good chance of becoming president and beating Joe Biden. I agree with that. It's it's a little hard to see. I mean, they'd come up with something and he would drive them nuts. You know, Char- Charlie's right that you know his biography is is a very important message in the way he uses it, pushing back against a really important cultural priority of the left, which is tearing down the country and its its history. So it, it would be Clarence Thomas squared if he were actually the Republican nominee. So the second promised barrel, Jim Garrity, Tim Scott would have some chance of being Donald Trump's running mate if Donald Trump is the nominee. Uh, not extremely unlikely. Uh, simply because there are so many more MAGA-minded Republican figures itching for the job. Uh, Apparently, uh, Donald Trump and Carrie Lake talk regularly and have this intense mutual admiration society. So I think there are other folks who'd want the job better. Tim's, you know, South Carolina's a pretty reliable Republican state, so Tim Scott wouldn't be delivering anything uh, that he would need. And I don't think Donald Trump would get a significantly higher chunk of the African-American vote just because he had Tim Scott as his running mate. So I just, I have a hard time seeing that. Noah? No, and it would be foolish for Donald Trump to select Tim Scott because Tim Scott can do populism in the way that the our very well-heeled, high-born, plutocratic class who mimics uh, populist affect and language can't. The guy actually has a real claim to a proletarian background in ways that the the people who pretend to be populists in our politics do not. Charlie. I'm going to disagree. I don't know whether Tim Scott would accept it, but I would imagine 
that Tim Scott's fairly high up on Trump's target list if he wins the nomination. <clears throat> I'm also going to I'm going to go with Jim say that the odds are against it. It would be, you know, the Pence Trump match was was kind of weird especially at the beginning and I, I just think there there too great a disparity between these two guys and fundamental message and and personality and all the rest of it and there have to be some more mega minded people uh, available that Trump would be interested in with that let's hear from our first sponsor this episode made in cookware we have made in frying pans here in our kitchen and they are awesome made in was created by a hundred year old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply it works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant professional quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Maiden's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found this all to be true with our pans. They're great to handle. They cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. My wife was just trying to cook some popcorn on the stovetop and burned it in a regular pan, and that sucker's soaking in the sink. It could be soaking in the sink for days. If it had been one of our maiden pans, a scrubbing job ahead of your humble host would be much, much easier. So Made in Cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. So Noah, we have events in Ukraine Bakhmut has fallen, finally. This was a, a long, grinding battle. The New York Times has drone footage from above the city, and it is just totally bombed out. There had been reports for a long time that it was on the verge of falling. It didn't. It was apparently a total meat grinder for the Russians. And then we also have this, this insurgent action targeting a, uh, a town within Russia. What do you make of it all? Yeah, so the fall of Bakhmut is a long time coming, and it's never good when you lose terrain to uh, an opposing army. So it's, you don't want to put too brave a face on it. But um, Ukrainians took a lot of heat for defending this territory over the course of 10 months, held uh, Russian forces and, and Wagner um, militia groups off and inflicted, according to Western estimates, roughly 100,000 casualties, uh, fatalities, and wounded over the course of this defense. Now, it sacrifices the town and gives uh, Moscow the ability to forward position artillery, which threatens positions farther into Ukraine. All well, that's not good, but it's a Pyrrhic victory in the sense that Russia lost a lot more than it gained over the course of this offensive. The Wagner militia group is saying, we're going we're gonna to pull back now. Russian military, this is up to you to hold and defend. Good luck. Uh, there's a lot of tension between uh, Prigozhin, who's the head of this militia group, and the Ministry of Defense. And as you said, simultaneously, this is occurring now amid, quote-unquote, shaping operations, which are attacks that occur 
along the line of contact, behind the line of contact in order to uh, disorient Russia, force it to move its forces here, there, the other. They have to maintain a heightened state of readiness because they never know where the, the offensive is going to show up. And then you see this episode occurring in Bulgorod, which is a city in Russia, in Russia proper, on the other side of the border from Donetsk. And uh, it's been a staging area. It's been targeted by Ukrainian artillery for months now. But we saw over the course of the last 72 hours, something akin to an insurrection over there. According to the sources that are now being reported in the Times, we see this in open source intelligence, but now the New York Times uh, has its imprimatur on it so we can actually talk about it. Uh, where apparently Russians engaged in, Russian, Russian nationals uh, aligned with Ukraine, engaging in offensive operations inside Russia proper against the Russian Federation. And that's really interesting. That's really destabilizing. And it represents another one of these red lines that we were supposedly told by um, people in the West who are very attuned to and suspicious of anything that could be seen as escalatory, anything that could convince Russia to escalate its posture somehow, not sure exactly how, with the absence of deploying weapons of mass destruction, maybe unleashing an even more genocidal campaign of ethnic cleansing. But nevertheless, here's another one of these red lines that Russia was supposed to not accept. And it's right in front of our eyes. It's happening right now. And it does destabilize and disorient the Kremlin, and it does undermine Vladimir Putin's position, and it does have force Russia to move units around. And we haven't even seen the offensive happen yet. And this is one of those things that will make you wonder, well, Everybody thinks it's going to go south, right, to Ukraine or to, to Crimea, to Zaporozhizhna, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it goes north. Maybe it goes into Donetsk. We don't know. And it just, it increases the fog of war and expands the, the area of operations in ways that do advantage Kyiv when it eventually engages in the offensive proper. So, Jim, speaking of red lines, I'm open to the idea that there are red lines. There's, there, there clearly are major red lines we, we should honor. And, and, and my view, as we've discussed in the past, you know, a no-fly zone would be a a mistake. We shouldn't have troops involved in Ukraine. But uh, so I, I'm sympathetic to Biden wanting to draw lines on giving certain munitions or training or whatever it is to Ukraine in theory. But we've had this phenomenon. We just have another stark example of it here with F-16 training, where the Biden administration draw, draws a line and say, no, we can't give them that. It'll be too escalatory. You know, God forbid what, what would happen if, if we did that. And then three to six months later, does it? <laughs> you know, where there's at least a prospect if they had given them all this stuff right at the beginning, maybe you would have had a, a different outcome in the, the first year or, or Ukraine would have been able to, you know, push Russia uh, all the way back in, in the first year rather than being involved in this this uh, desperate slog, but what do you make of this turnaround on F-16 training? Oh, it's a little bit worse than that, Rich, because back in February, in that interview with ABC News, President Biden said he doesn't need that regarding to Zelensky and F-16s. Now, Zelensky was saying, I desperately need F-16s. Ukrainian defense officials were saying, we desperately need F-16s. We need to win air superiority. We need air support for our guys on the ground. We need to shoot down the Russians who are trying to bomb stuff uh, in our country. And Biden, in all of his infant wisdom, is like, ah, no, 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 I know better than you. Our military experts say there's no... Now, somehow, magically, between February and now, it changed. And we're going to train the F-16 pilots, but we're not going to provide them with F-16s. Now, obviously, it sounds like the plan is that we will provide F-35s to our European allies, and our European allies will give their F-16s to 
to Ukraine. I can't help but notice, by the way, we were supposed to provide something like 66 F-16s to Taiwan, and we have not delivered those, and we are running behind on that because of, get ready for it, supply chain issues. Hey, remember that thing <laughs> that Biden told us was fixed and really never turned out to be much of a problem, and Pete Buttigieg was on top of it? and all that. Well, it turns out, actually, yeah, supply chain problems are still very bad. And uh, we're, you know, so I, now obviously the ones we're sending to Taiwan are the most advanced ones. But my sneaking suspicion is one of the reasons we were not sending F-16s to Taiwan is that the ones we have have more advanced avionics and systems and stuff like that that we're nervous about falling in the hands of the Russians if, you know, God forbid, one of these F-16s gets shot down uh, over territory that's controlled by Russia. Uh, but overall, like you can't just come out and say, yeah, we can't spare them or while well, our ability to produce F-16s is really loused up because of the supply chain issues. No, good old Joe Biden, the doddering 80-year-old, has to say, ah, they don't need them, and then change his mind two months ago. And it's been that way. We just were very proud of the fact that the Patriot missiles just shot down some of the Russian hypersonic missiles. For nearly a year, Joe Biden was insisting Ukraine didn't need Patriot missiles. And then he started seeing all the damage being done to Ukrainian cities. Ah, changed my mind. Whoops. Okay, guess I need them after all. That's what we've done over and over again. And the problem is Joe Biden has two very contradictory impulses. I know listeners to this podcast have heard me say it before, but it's still true. And the war drags on. We're now well past a year. And Biden still can't decide whether his top priority is to help Ukraine win the war, and he wants to be Winston Churchill. He wants to lead the West in this grand battle against tyranny. Or whether his dovish instincts of he just wants the war to end, and he doesn't want it to escalate, he doesn't want it to get any worse. You can't have both. At some point, you have to choose and given on any given day, depending on which part of the National Security Council he's listening to or which cabinet official he's listening to, Biden can change his mind and he can change back. It's, you know, like, as we've seen in our great, uh, our colleague Jimmy Quinn observed when he, you know, Biden said uh, uh, we were not negotiating the reduction of sanctions of the Chinese defense minister. And the U.S. State Department said, no, absolutely, we're not doing that. Joe Biden is not a reliable source on what the positions of his own administration are. He is a rambling old man who just blurts out the first thing that per pops into his mind, whether or not it's actually related to the policies that he's already agreed to. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing era for political scientists and historians to study where two presidents running weren't fully in control of their administration and, and would say things that they portrayed as policy that turned out not to be the policy of their own yeah. administration. So, Charlie, obviously Ukraine is, is already figured in the early going in the 2024 Republican campaign. We had the, the DeSantis territorial dispute statement, and Trump talks about this a lot. So what, what do you make of, of the Trump claim or boast that only he can stop World War Three uh, in, in the, the Ukraine-Russia war. Does that make any sense to you, have any resonance? Yeah, I think he'll come in and within 24 hours, every problem in the world will disappear. <laughs> Look, I think that there is some value to a figure such as Trump as a prophylactic. Sorry to put that image in listeners' minds. When he is in office and is demonstrably crazy, I think that can and probably did have some salutary effects on the world stage in turning the White House and the United States more broadly into an unpredictable player. I don't think it works backwards, though. I don't think that if Trump were elected to a second term, that the ongoing, if it is still ongoing, war in Ukraine would 
be affected by the fact that Trump is regarded as unstable, perhaps it would have an effect on China. Perhaps it would alter China's timetable or embryonic plans to invade Taiwan, if indeed it wishes to do so. I don't see how, given that there are now real facts on the ground in Ukraine, people have been lost, an awful lot of people have been lost, it would allow him to fix everything overnight. I mean, I don't mean this as a defense of Trump, but I think that his boast that he'll end the war in 24 hours is one of those mm-hmm. lines that we Seriously, were told is supposed literally. to be taken Seriously, not literally. He's trying to convey to the audience that he is more intelligent than everyone in Washington, D.C., which is not true. He's trying to convey to the audience that he has a different approach to this war, which is true, often for worse. No, I I don't buy it. So, Noah, following on from that next question to you, if Donald Trump were elected president again, and the conflict was still going on in some some form, much like it is today, Donald Trump, in your view, would lose the war in Ukraine, would settle the war in Ukraine, or end up adopting something like the current U.S. policy, just kind of dressed up differently? Well, it depends on who he staffs his administration with. If he staffs his administration with anything resembling his first term staff, which we don't think would happen, he would probably execute a strategy that I very much appreciated as a lifelong Russia hawk. In his first year in office, he was a very effective uh, counterbalance to uh, Russian ambitions in Europe. Um, we, I, I don't think we couldn't have any, ex- uh, uh, we, we can't expect that he would have a, a particularly competent staff in his second term. I'm not sure who would want to work with him. And the people who would want to work with him are probably his ideological allies who are suspicious of uh, the American position vis-a-vis Russia. And I think it resonates with this particular cohort who say, you know, he can just end it whenever he wants to, because that line of thinking is particularly chauvinist. It used to be native to the far left. And it assumes that all things that happen on the planet Earth are attributable to American action or inaction, that the United States could simply disengage, and the second it did so, peace would break out, because we are somehow the causes of this uh, war, and we, we can therefore end it if we so chose. Uh, it's foolish, it elides uh, A to B, because there's no way to get from A to B, but it's indicative of, of a conspiratorial mindset that uh, gives the United States um, both omniscience and uh, and assigns to it a malevolence that I find particularly pernicious. Jim Garrity, lose, settle, some version of the status quo. It is hard to say, but I would observe that Tim uh, that Donald Trump returning to the Oval Office would instantly dramatically reduce Ukraine's leverage and confidence, and dramatically increase Russia's leverage and confidence. And so you could well see the Ukrainians and the rest of NATO saying, okay, war's over, time for us to draw some new borderlines. Let's call it a draw. 
And it's entirely mm-hmm. possible that Russia would then say, ah, okay, well, you know what? Wow, we really can win this war of attrition. Mm-hmm. And they would not agree to a draw, not agree to a peace talks, and figure that within the first year of the Trump administration, uh, the second Trump administration, they could advance deep into Ukrainian territory. Try. I agree with Jim. I would just note that irrespective of the results of the election, the leverage may well be different in a year's time, a year and a half's time than it is now on its own. So it's difficult to entirely predict what effect Donald Trump coming in again would have. But if we assume the status quo then, yeah, I think Jim's right. So I think it's going to be hard for him to lose it. It would be embarrassing to lose it. You know, his position, at least stated position, isn't Ukraine should lose. It's that this should be settled and stopped. So I I think if that's the trajectory, he'd have to push back against it. So I I kind of um, come somewhere in between, you know, settling and, and the status quo policy. It would uh, He'd obviously put more pressure on Ukraine to sit down. The problem is, you know, would, would Russia cooperate? And if Trump's all invested in settling the war and Russia clearly is not cooperating, I think he'd, he'd end up uh, pushing back against Russia more than, than some people would expect. So I guess that's a kind of a, a very qualified, uh, with a lot, a lot of confidence, sort of version of optimism if uh, uh, from Trump on Ukraine, if he's elected again with that, let's go to our second sponsor. This episode, Waterstone, when Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor advised funds It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With the Charitable Pool Trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict these values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month and charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we're going to clear the decks here. Um, hope hope you uh, there's nothing you can break in the course of gesticulating wildly during your answer to this uh, query. I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm just going to make the statement and, and let you go from there. Joe Biden says he has the authority under the 14th Amendment to unilaterally suspend the debt limit. Well, he doesn't. And he knows he doesn't. And everyone else knows that he doesn't. The people calling on him to do it know that it is a lie. The people endorsing it, having repudiated it, I'm thinking of Lawrence Tribe in particular, understand that they are prostituting themselves to transient politics. This should outrage every single American, irrespective of which party they vote for, irrespective of whether they like or dislike Joe Biden, irrespective of what they want to happen 
on the debt ceiling because this is the endorsement of a usurpation that strikes at the heart of our constitutional order. There are some parts of the US Constitution that are difficult to parse, not usually because they are written in an unclear way, although there are a few examples of that, but because it is tough for judges to make determinations. But this is not one of them. This is one of the most basic elementary core questions that will ever come up in our politics. That question being, which branch of government is in charge of the purse? The Constitution lays this out in its first section. You get past the preamble, you see the words Article 1, and it's right there. All legislative powers. All. That then in turn is fleshed out. It is made clear that Congress controls spending, taxing, and borrowing debt, as it always has. Throughout American history, there has never been another system. We have never given that authority to anyone else. Whether it was taxing, or spending, or borrowing, or issuing bonds, or any variation thereof, this was Congress's job, and it was understood to be Congress's job. And you don't have to go too far back in history to see people emphatically stating as much in the same context. 2011, Timothy Geithner, the Treasury Secretary under Barack Obama, said in no uncertain terms when asked this question that they had looked into it and they had concluded that there is no presidential authority in this area. That the 14th Amendment, which does contain a line about debts, does not alter Article 1, does not confer any new powers on the president, does not attenuate or mitigate or reduce Congress's absolute power over this area. And all of a sudden, in the year 2023, more than a century and a half after the passage of the 14th Amendment, this is supposedly changed. Joe Biden, President of the United States, number 46 has realized that he personally has the power to control the purse, to borrow, to authorize more debt. Well, he doesn't. And the idea, even if he doesn't do it, the idea itself that he believes otherwise should terrify Everybody. Now, why do we use the word usurpation in this context? It's not just lawlessness. It's not just a violation of the plain text of our founding law. But it is a usurpation of Congress. Why does this matter? It matters because people vote for Congress too. We have different elections in this country at different levels. We vote for the governor of Florida, or at least I do. We vote for state legislators in Florida, or at least I do. We vote for senators, we vote for members of the House, and we vote for president. Different people won those elections, and those different people have different jobs within the system. The Republicans, having been kicked out for four years, regained control of the House in 2022. And even if you 
play some progressive game. You still can't get past that. There was no mismatch between the party that controls the majority and the party that won the popular vote for the House, which is not a thing, but is often assumed to be one. Republicans won control of the House of Representatives. If the President of the United States lies about the law, if he claims powers that he doesn't have, if he says we can't reach a negotiation between the branches, so I will do it on my own, he is usurping all of the voters who put Republicans in charge of the House and in charge of that power. That's why this matters. And I will finish by saying that this is no different. This is no different in outline or in severity from Donald Trump trying to steal the last election. In fact, it's quite similar. Donald Trump lost in 2020. People voted for someone else. They did not confer upon him the powers that he was requesting. And after he lost, he said, I am going to use two laws that do not do what he said they do to take that power anyway. Donald Trump tried to use the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and the 12th Amendment to the Constitution to stay in power, to exercise authority that he did not have. And do you know what people at National Review said? No. We said no in no uncertain terms. We didn't flit around the edges. We didn't use euphemisms. We said absolutely not. That is not what those laws mean. That is not how they can be used. This is an attack on our system of government. This is an attack on separation of powers. This is an attack on our constitution. That is what Joe Biden is doing now when he says he has the authority to bypass Congress because he doesn't like its approach and to control the power of the purse on his own. And it must be met with the same emphatic no. So, Jim Garrity, on the debt limit in general, there seems to be a dawning recognition among Democrats that actually this is not going great for them, not the way they planned. Axios had an item yesterday on three regrets that Democrats have. So I'll throw these at you and tell me whether you agree with these uh, regrets. So one, they now think they should have raised or abolished the debt ceiling when they had full control of government the way they did the first two years. They made a mistake by assuming that there'd be House GOP dysfunction such that they couldn't pass any debt ceiling measure without any plan B if they actually did. And three, not starting to negotiate sooner. They're finally negotiating now, even though they're, they're maintaining this ridiculous fiction that it's not really a negotiation over the debt ceiling. It's a negotiation over the budget because they would never negotiate over the debt ceiling because it's just gospel that that can't happen. So if I understand this question correctly, Rich, is in this scenario, I'm a Democrat and I have the same interests they do. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if I were them and I wanted the same things they did, then yes, yes, I would have tried to raise the debt ceiling before I lost control of the House. Yes, and, I would and definitely can we assume, have a- Sorry, Jim. So can we assume they didn't do that just because raising the debt ceiling is a painful thing to do? It is, but also, like, could you put a few more conditions on this question and a few more caveats? I just want to make sure it's is, <laughs> is the moon in Sagittarius in this scenario? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they should have done this, even if it was hard, because then they wouldn't be in this situation. Um, I definitely would have had a, pa- a plan B. You could argue that 
considering Kevin McCarthy's challenging path to the speakership, that it was a reasonable bet that Republicans would have divisions. But it turns out, you know, I said that Kevin McCarthy might be kind of like uh, Bruce Willis's character in Pulp Fiction. They just keep underestimating him. And that's how he's going to get through this. That everybody thinks that he's this uh, hapless yokel who can't keep his caucus together. And yet somehow by get bringing the uh, having more of the hardliners or House Freedom Caucus, however you want to characterize them, uh, inside the tent going out instead of outside the tent going in, so to speak, uh, he's, got a, he's kept the Republicans together. And there hasn't been any counterproposal from Senate Democrats. There really hasn't been any counterproposal from the Biden administration. Uh, the only chamber that has passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling is the House Republicans. So that's the only game in town right now. Now, Biden could put another offer on the table, and it probably will. My guess is, as of this recording, I still think they probably avoid it. But man, that clock is sticking down. As I've said, my worst fear is that Joe Biden is operating on this sense that, ah, don't worry, at the last second Republicans will fold and they'll give you a clean increase. I would not bet on that. I would, if I were, you know, there, there's a lack of seriousness here. And I really think that you're, it's accurate to say the Democrats didn't have much of a plan besides wait for Kevin McCarthy to fumble. And what's really kind of bizarre is here we are in the third week of May and they're still talking about what they should have done six months ago instead of what they should do right here and now. What they should do right here and now is say to Republicans, okay, we see your list of we see your list of demands. We'll give you A and B. We will not give you C and D. Right? Pick two things, give it, throw them some bones, give them some concessions. And maybe, oh, that's the other thing if you're Joe Biden, you desperately want this raising the debt ceiling. You don't want it for a year. You want it for two years. You don't want to be dealing with this in the middle of a presidential race next year. So you may have to make some bigger concessions. Oh, by the way, it sounds like he's getting a, he's willing to uh, give some ground on work concessions. And last night there was some talk that House Democrats said they could live with a spending freeze. A spending freeze? Mm-hmm. Wait, I thought that was economic. That was going to be, you know, the earth would crash to the sun if that happened. So conceivably, it may, you know, it, look, we don't know what's going to happen. History has taught us not to put too much faith into congressional Republicans. But right now, Kevin McCarthy is playing his hand very, very well. Mm-hmm. And House Democrats seem to have just assumed that he was going to fall apart and that they didn't need to come up with a counter strategy. Yeah, it seems like the, the easiest play, Noah, now would be make some sort of concession, compromise, offer, quarter loaf, whatever it is, but something that would strike people as reasonable and then put the court, the ball back in Kevin McCarthy's court and probably watch him squirm. You know, it, it'd be uh, it's going to be difficult for him to get a compromise uh, th- through the House. But the 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 core, the root of the Democrats problem here, though, is just the assumption, the belief that it's completely immoral and wrong to negotiate over a debt ceiling, that, that this this is some some first principle of American government that you can't negotiate over this. And that was always a rationalization or a, really a political messaging strategy that seems to have transmogrified into actually, as you say, a first principle when it was, it was never based on anything, it had no precedent. It was just something they invented in order to preserve what was a political strategy. Writing in the New Republic today, Alex Shepard uh, tears apart the Democratic strategy. Why didn't Democrats raise the debt ceiling in 2022, as Jim said? is because they thought it would be advantageous to have this fight. They thought it would be advantageous to run against Republican extremism. Those are the words he used. And extremism has been the Democratic rallying cry against Republicans for well over a decade now, 12 years, 13 years, with mixed results, some good, some bad. But when it is mixed, 
it is because we are talking about competing extremisms. Democrats seem incapable of recognizing what voters see as their own efforts to expand the rules of, of political engagement. Spending $4 trillion on a lot of social engineering and using a national emergency as cover as extremist. Using the 14th Amendment to abrogate the Constitution is extremist. Pretending that you don't have to negotiate with the Chamber of Congress from which appropriations bills originate, which the voters in their wisdom saw fit to hand to Republicans, is extremist. So you're talking about now having to navigate a rather nebulous distinction between two competing extremisms and thinking you're going to come out on top only if you're drinking your own Kool-Aid, which they seem to have done. So Charlie Cook, X question to you, who has the most to lose in the debt ceiling fight, the White House or congressional Republicans? The White House, in part because, ignorantly, a majority of voters seem to blame all economic conditions and economic policies on the president rather than on Congress. So irrespective of whose fault a default would be in any cosmic sense, irrespective of who was reasonable and who was not in a negotiation, it would have happened on Biden's watch and he would bear the brunt of it. Noah. Yes, and for the reasons Charlie said, but also when government shutdowns occur and Republicans get the blame, the assumption is, well, that the voters genuinely think that the Republican Party is the green eye shade party. They don't want to spend money. So when they stop, when the government stops spending money, it's their fault. This is different. This is not that. This is a problem of debt and, the, and accruing too much debt, which is a problem of spending. And what is the party that is dedicated to spending, de deficit spending? It's the Democratic Party. So they have two, two frustrating messaging problems that would... Uh, complicate their efforts to say, well, it was just the you know the very very tiny minority of Republicans in control of one chamber of Congress that did this to you, Jim Garrity. I think there's roughly equivalent danger if we hit the debt ceiling and there's a terrible recession. It's going to be bad news for both the White House and the House Republican majority. Uh, but having said that, I think it's more likely that the Democrats could talk themselves into believing ah. Well, the media will blame the Republicans and we'll get off scot-free. No, you won't. Republicans will be, uh, the public will be in an anti-incumbent mood. They'll be either, they'll be throwing blame around like, uh, uh, you know, gushing out from a fire hose. Uh, they will not be careful. They will not listen to excuses and they'll be angry at everybody. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Even if they, they're, they're completely successful in the political communications effort to blame Republicans, the president is is going to be held accountable for any economic turmoil and it's going to drag him down too. So it's really a Samson option for him. So I, I think the, the White House has more to lose. And that's, a, that's another factor that should be eroding its leverage. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your way. If you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way to dig deeper into the NR community, if that floats your boat, to be invited to exclusive events and calls with the writers, editors, and other conservative figures. We had the great Chip Roy on a week or so ago. You can also comment on articles and blog posts and be part of our private Facebook groups. So it's a great deal all around, and most importantly, a really 
consequential way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up today, tomorrow, or the day after and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you saw Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is the one that's in theaters. Uh, If you're like me, or at least I I enjoyed a great deal of Marvel's run in the multiplex over the last decade or so. But let's face it, Phase 4 really uh, flopped. With the exception of the Spider-Man movie, most of them were less entertaining. You can make an argument they were more woke, that they were preachier or just tired or um, just overall subpar efforts. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is the last offering by James Gunn, who's going to take over operations over with the DC Comics movies. Uh, it is very similar, maybe slightly darker, maybe slightly more mature than the previous two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but it's very much in his style. It's very much in his fun, um, goofiness, absolute silliness, and then something kind of heart-tugging and adorable the next. Uh, it's obviously an ode to friendship and the idea that uh, you know friends are the family that you form. Uh, deliberately, and it's just a uh, good old fun time at the movies, which Marvel really hadn't been sell, you know, serving up much lately. So uh, back to form for them and hopefully a, a sign of what's to come. Excellent. Noah, you're looking forward to Memorial Day. I am. It is the start of the season. Um, pool is open. All the requisite repairs have been made, and we anticipate having some neighbors over this weekend uh, for some sandwiches and some cold beers and some pool time. And it's uh, it's just glorious. And I like it. All right. Well, Charlie, you won't be here for Memorial Day because you are heading out for Italy. Yeah, I assume that's why I didn't get an invite from Noah because he knew that I would <laughs> be traveling. I am going to Italy in one day tomorrow. So I will not be on the editor's for a couple of weeks, and there will be no Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Mm. But I will be luxuriating in Tuscany, so I think that's a good deal for me. Charlie heading to Tuscany, and our podcast listeners hit hardest. (laughs) So I was at a community event the other day at a local school, and because I'm a natural organizer, I got a pickup game of basketball going where the oldest player besides me was was in sixth grade and everyone else was even younger than that and i say unabashedly that i dunked on these kids on a six foot tall hoop and it felt good and i am not ashamed with that uh it's time for our editor's picks jim garrity what's your pick Okay, at the risk of having more than one choice, I kind of want to go with the gang tackle you've seen at National Review uh, about Biden and the 14th Amendment. Uh, We discussed a bit just now in the podcast. Uh, Charlie had not one but two great uh, essays or corner posts on this. I quoted one in the morning jolt. And one of the things I noticed is you might say, oh, why does National Review need all these different people weighing in? Well, everybody's got some different angle or aspect that that they want to call attention to. Um, I noticed that Janet Yellen had said this was a constitutional crisis two weeks ago on the Sunday shows, right? That seems kind of important. You don't have to listen to us crazy right-wingers saying it's a constitutional crisis. Biden's own Treasury Secretary is. Um, Noah weighed in with a good piece yesterday. Dan McLaughlin weighed in. Rich, you weighed in on the corner pointing out that, like, 
uh, all the different arguments that this is, you know, really bad politics on top of everything else. And then Charlie pointed out the great evidence, like, why can't the folks on the left say, oh, this also violates the Constitution, and just stop there? They don't have to say, well, the Supreme Court might not accept it, might not believe it's constitutional. No, it violates the Constitution. Full stop, period, nothing there. Anyway, just great team effort here, and I hope everyone's reading all of these pieces on this. Go team. No Rothman. What's your pick? Uh, I was going to single out Charlie's Why Can't Progressive Writers Defend the Law, but it was a very tough choice um, between that piece and your piece, Rish. The Bussing of Migrants has worked. I'm going with your piece. The Bussing of Migrants has worked. It is a political coup, as you outline. It has managed to uh, introduce the arguments that uh, border hawks have been making for years, and all of a sudden they're coming out of the mouths of uh, blue state uh, politicians and dark blue mayors in northeastern cities and all that for the low, low cost of a bus ticket. Well, I appreciate that, but the ultimate credit goes to you because I got the idea to write this column from a piece you wrote a week or two ago about how the busing has worked as a political tactic. Charlie Cook, what's your pick? There's a piece in the last issue of the magazine that is somewhat strange. It's called How Children Once Learned to Write. And it's not actually an essay so much as it's a hybrid with an intro and an outro. And then some questions that are posed by its author, Brian Garner, and some answers that are taken from a book by Harvard University Press from uh, 1915. I, I won't say any more. If you get the magazine, go, go and read it. it. It's actually fascinating. So my pick is an editorial on this so-called city bike, Karen Incident headline, Bellevue Hospital's Disgraceful Reaction to the Viral City Bike Video. This uh, is a small thing, but it's almost made worse for how small it is. I'm sure most people who follow the news intensely are aware of this. A, a pregnant uh, hospital worker is leaving her shift and rents a, a city bike. She has receipts to prove that she rented this city bike. A black kid tries to take it from her. He's there with a group of friends. They're videotaping her. They're mocking her. She gets very upset. She yells for help and starts to cry. And of course, because she yelled for help and started to cry, she is a white supremacist, at least according to the social media mob. And, you know, we shouldn't expect any better from the social media mob, perhaps. But Bellevue Hospital suspended her with, with zero evidence to justify such a suspension just based on what the social media mob did this young woman has uh, fortunately hired uh, very aggressive and very effective uh, attorneys that are pushing back on on her behalf? But uh, Bellevue disgraced itself and should reverse her suspension as soon as possible, like yesterday. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, recount this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly. Prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Maiden and Waterstone. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.